So last week we started on the Bible course and we started with Genesis and it was quite a whistle-stop tour really, wasn't it? Genesis is is a big book, but uh, Claire boiled it down to two themes. Can you remember those two themes? They both begin with a C? Creation, Creation and covenant. Creation, that would be good. Okay, yes, 10 out of 10. Creation and covenant. What an amazing uh, story there is in there. So Genesis, that's where we were last week. And then we moved through that. And if you remember that, that covenant was was given to, uh, and, and the revelation was started to be made to a family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through the Bible, you'll see that reference, you know, to the God of Abraham, to the God of Isaac, to the God of Jacob. These are the beginnings. Genesis means beginnings. And the beginnings are important things, as we know. But now we're going to move on from there because we're going to Exodus. So we put Exodus on the Bible timeline. Exodus, what's happened in the meantime? Well, Jacob had 12 sons. One of those was Joseph, as you know, but he was sold into slavery by his brothers who who felt he was getting quite a bit above himself. Uh, And so he's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, where, to begin with, he's a slave. He's accused falsely of crimes. All kinds of things go on for him. But by the intervention of God, because he remained faithful to the God that he knew, he rises to essentially become prime minister in Egypt. This was a big deal. But through that, through the intervention of God, through through Joseph's um, obedience and, and willingness and, and, and determinedness to stay um, close to God, his family are rescued. And not just they, not just the, the family, but all of Israel, if you like, comes with him. A small group at that time. And they're rescued and they're welcomed in Egypt. But it doesn't stay that way for very long. Well, it does for a bit. But we're skipping forward now around about 400 years when Israel was in Egypt. Did you know it was that long? 400 years they were in Egypt. They were there for quite some time. I'm going to knock that over soon. Um, They were there for quite some time. And things started to get a little bit tricky. Because do you know what happened? They grew. They multiplied. They spread in the land. And now all of a sudden they're a foreign body. There are a bunch of people, a bunch of aliens in a very powerful country, and they become a threat. At least that's how Pharaoh sees them. He's concerned that they might rise up and overpower his nation. And they could, because it was a big nation that was there, a very big nation. And so his answer to that, standard answer, when you've got a a foreign nation living in your boundaries or when you don't like a particular people group, standard issue is genocide, isn't it? Still happens today. I'm sorry, this 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 is life. This is what the world is like. And so he starts, he, he puts out this edict that all the firstborn males have to be killed. So what is the context then? Here they are in Egypt, and the context essentially is slavery. Now, slavery, I guess maybe until recently, we might have had a very narrow view of what slavery was. We might have thought when you know, people of my generation was young that it was something way in the past. 
but it's actually quite relevant today, as you probably know. So who can tell me what kinds of modern-day slavery do we see? Sex trafficking. Let's get that one in. Yeah, there we go. Sexual exploitation. Anything else? Servitude. Servitude. Let's go for domestic servitude. Yeah. Drugs. Drugs trade, etc. Yes, very relevant to us in our place today. County lines and so on. Anything else? Nail bars. Okay, let's use labor exploitation for that one because that encompasses a lot of different things. I'm, I want some answers from this side. Sorry? Speak up then. <laughs> Sorry. Hands up then. Let me see. Anybody? No? Okay, we'll go over it. Sorry? Child labor. Now we've got child labor in here. That comes, oh, I'll tell you what, we'll add this one in because you might not see that one. Not just child labor, but actually child soldiers. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, I think we've got those kind of labor things, we've got so on. Anything else? Okay, we'll add into the, into the uh, drug trade forced criminality. There's a lot of that goes on around the world as well. How about, perhaps we don't come across it, forced marriage. And for my last one, something again you might not have come across, Organ donation. Some people are forced to give up their organs. This is actually from Stop the Traffic. This is on their websites. This is the, uh, their examples of different kinds of slavery that happen today. So, this isn't something remote. Even in our world today, we see slavery of so many different kinds. In fact, you know, it's quite clear that there's more slavery now, perhaps, than ever before. This is a multi-billion dollar pound, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter that number, does it? Trade across the world. It's probably in your location, and you might not even know it. So slavery. But let's just bring it even closer to home. What enslaves you? What keeps you bound up? Is there anything that stops you being totally, absolutely free? Okay, so here we are then, Exodus. Let's just think. Is there anything that's keeping you bound up, keeping you uh, non-free? Exodus. Exodus then is also the story of Moses. Who's heard of Moses? Yeah, good, I'm sure you have. It's the story of Moses. Now Moses, according to tradition, compiles all of these five books that we've got here. Okay? So Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the books that, wrote, that Moses compiles and brings together that become the history of the nation of Israel. The first five books called the Torah or the Law, uh, Pentateuch it's also known as. It's guidance that's given to the young nation of Israel how to live for God. Slavery, genocide, all is going on at this time. Moses escapes that genocide. He should have been one of those that was killed, one of those firstborn. And if you know the general stories of Moses, has anybody seen Prince of India or any or older films? 
Sorry, Prince of Egypt, sorry. Thank you. Prince of Egypt, that's another one, isn't it? We'll come back to that. Prince of Egypt, um, there was a Charlton Heston film many years ago about Moses. You'll know the general story of what goes on. He's rescued um, because his mother, it trusts in God and casts him out into the waters in a Moses basket, which you may have had for your children or you may even have slept in one. But he flees because he grows up. He's, he's found by the princess and he grows up as a royal in the royal household as a prince. But then he comes across his, um, you know, his people being unfairly treated. And what does he do? Stand up for them? No, he kind of loses it and murders someone uh, and then he has to run away. God does have the strangest of ways of getting us involved in his story, doesn't he? But he needs to go away because he needs to have an encounter. He needs to have an encounter with God. He needs to have this, this, this close, deep encounter. Because through his call and through his leadership, God is going to reveal key aspects of his plan for all mankind. His key redemptive plan. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is what is God revealing in Exodus? What is he telling us through this story of this man, through the story of this nation? Again, nation founding, nation building, their amazing journey they go on. There's a lot going on here. Again, it's going to be a whistle-stop tour. Exodus is quite a solid book. If you've never read it through before, I I really suggest you do it. The reading plan we have for this course will will hit highlights as you go through. But do you know what? It's a really good book. If you you read it and get into it, it's it's, it's a page-turner. It really is. Find a modern translation if you need to that will help you kind of read it through. It is an amazing page-turner. But the first thing that we're going to look at is that God reveals his name. You might know from the Bible, you might know from those films, the, the account of the burning bush. You know, Moses sees, hears this bush that's burning, and, and it's not being consumed. That's not normal, guys. That doesn't happen, okay? And he knows that doesn't happen, so he goes over to take a look, and he encounters God. He encounters God. But God wants something closer in that relationship. And Moses says, well, what do I call you? Who are you? What's your name? And, you know, God reveals himself as Yahweh. I am who I am. In your Bibles, that, that, that single word sometimes doesn't translate very easily. So in your Bibles, especially in the Old Testament, if you see Lord in capital letters, that's actually Yahweh being translated in something you and I can A, pronounce and B, understand. But that is God giving Moses an understanding of his name. Why is that important? Why is that important? God isn't a name. God is a description, a title, if you like. Yahweh, God is saying, this is my name, this is who you call me. Now, we can be quite reserved and, and uptight here in Britain, and we can call people Mr. or, or something and use titles. Uh, you could call me Pastor, but you could also call me Tony. Which is the most deep personal relationship? If you call me Tony. Absolutely. When we were young, we were probably always called by our surnames, not our first names at school. And in fact, we even called each other 
by surnames because that's the way thing is. But, you know, God is actually saying, this is my name. You can know me personally. God is coming down to where his people are. Remember there was this fall from being close to God here in Genesis, and then they fall away, and now we're getting to hear how God is going to reinstate that relationship. So his name is really important that his people know his name. And this is where he meets Moses and says, this is my name, this is what you can call me. And the story develops, doesn't it? And Moses talks to God in that relationship kind of way. And so that thing that, uh, of Yahweh, uh, of Lord, if you think forward to the New Testament, that is exactly why the religious people of the day got so annoyed when people said, Jesus is Lord. That's saying Jesus is God, Yahweh. That is what got up people's noses in the Gospels and thereafter. So Moses goes back to Egypt. And, you know, he, he, he's, he comes to Pharaoh with this amazing plea that kind of resounds uh, across the millennia. Let my people go. This isn't just a man speaking up for his friends, his family, his nation. This is God's word coming through Moses to let my people go. God's plea down through the millennia, ever since this full occasion, is to see his people released from slavery, from oppression, from being away and remote from him. Let my people go. We heard in Genesis how there's an enemy, talked about as the serpent, talked about as Satan, who dragged people down through temptation. But people did that. Adam and Eve succumbed to that and said, yes, let's try that. And so there's an enemy seeking to force people down and keep them under control. That's what that story is telling us. But God is saying in the midst of that situation, let my people go. And this is the, the plea of so many people today, even now, when they know what's going on in other lives. Let my people go. What did the families of those people from Vietnam who died sadly in the back of that truck think. They must have realized something bad was going on. Those people, you know, they're in oppression. They were being manipulated. They were being abused, all for the hope of some kind of freedom. Whereas in actual fact, the real freedom that God brings is a different kind of freedom. It's not in a place. It's not in a situation. It's not living in a, in a, 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 you know, a supposed land of, of milk and honey. It's actually living for God in a spiritual place that has all of those freedoms. Anyway, so Pharaoh's not going to have anything of that. He doesn't want to let these people go. He wants to oppress them. He doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want them rising up. He wants them as slaves because they're building his pyramids and all kinds of things. That's great. And so he says, no, because his power base is in there. That's his power base. And so he refuses. And then all of these various plagues come along through Exodus 7 all the way through to 11. Lots of plagues. Each and every one of them actually targets one of the the gods or one of the systems of belief in Egypt at that time. 
So what does that mean? What that means is the real issue that's coming there is God is saying, okay, who is God? We've heard him reveal his name. But now he's saying, okay, there's gods. Gods of the Nile, gods of the air, gods of this, that, and the other. But who is the real God? And that's that power encounter that Moses has with Pharaoh. And he still says no. And so all of these plagues come along until the ultimate one, you know, a plague on the firstborn. Isn't it funny how as you sow, so you shall reap? That's what the Bible says. And now this is coming home to Pharaoh. Who is God in your life? Who reigns supreme? Pharaoh thought he did. God, the Lord, Yahweh, comes and proves him to be completely and utterly wrong. So God's name, really important. Did we have that up? Let's get that one. Deliverance. This is the next key point of Exodus, is deliverance. What do you want when you're enslaved? Deliverance. You want freedom. What did the people want, Israel? They wanted their freedom. God comes along and through Moses says, give them their freedom. Pharaoh says no. And so God does an amazing thing of deliverance of them out of, out of Egypt. First thing, he calls them together. And as he's about to rescue them out of that land, he gives them this, this thing to do, this meal to have together, this Passover meal, the new version of which we've celebrated this morning. And they have their bitter herbs, which they have to, to share. They have their, their flat bread, because they can't, haven't got time to let it rise and bake it properly. Salt water, wine, lamb in particular. Because they sacrifice this lamb and they paint its blood on the doorposts to protect them. It's a, it's a faith thing. It's a, it's, that's what it is. It's a faith thing. It's a, a firstborn spotless lamb and the blood is put on the doorposts of, the, of wherever they're living, and when that angel of death comes, it passes over, and their firstborns aren't taken. And that is what Passover meal is. And we still do this. We still have wine. We still have bread. But what has changed now is the lamb. We don't sacrifice a lamb. Jesus has become the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The death of Christ becomes the ultimate Exodus gift, Exodus event, if you like. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 5. So this Passover meal is given to them as a remembrance thing, and they do that every year. But also, it's given to them as, as a faith key. You know, sometimes you have to put your faith in something physical. Sometimes you have to step out and say, this is what I believe. Sometimes you have to say to God, I've given up doing it my way. I'm going to do it your way. Help me. Show me. Be Lord in my life. And that's what they do. And for all of those who trusted and put their faith in God, they were saved and they were delivered. And so they come out of Egypt. But we know that's not the end, don't we? Because Pharaoh lets them go because of all the death and destruction that's going on in his kingdom. But then he has a change of heart when they go. In fact, they didn't just let them go. They gave them all their gold. Get out, get out, get out. We don't want you here. That's how much God touched their lives. But then when they're gone, they suddenly realize, hang on, what have we done? Send the armies after them. Send 
the armies after them. And so that's the next thing, the parting of the waters. What is this saying? They get to this, to this, this expanse of water and there is no way. There is no way across. And what's coming behind them? The armies of Pharaoh. You know, this is the original stuck between a rock and a hard place. There is no way forward to go. And behind them, the enemy. Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever felt there's nowhere to go? And yet even if you turn around, oppression is coming for you. The amazing thing that God is saying here is that he can make a way where there isn't any way. God brings another miracle at this point and he parts these waters as Moses holds his his staff, his rod, his symbol of authority, if you like, out over the waters, they part. And all of a sudden, God has made a way for their deliverance. We remember that today. We do something very similar. What do we do? Anybody? What does that speak to you about in the Gospels and in what, how we practice? Yes? Baptism. Yes. Thank you. We go through the waters of baptism as a symbol of dying to the world, then coming up and living to Christ. God has made a way where there's no other way. If you're in that place in your life where you think there's nothing for me, God has made a way if we would trust and if we would believe in him. And that deliverance comes. And they go through the waters by faith. You know, there's a kind of picture here of, of waters piled up. Every picture I've ever seen, it's not like a little splash. Every picture, every artistic representation of this, it's like water is piled high on either side, isn't it? In films, you've seen this kind of thing, sometimes really dramatically, and they're walking through. This This is a deliverance event, not some, oh, well, maybe I'll just get the soles of my feet a little bit wet and I'll be okay. This is a big thing, just as our deliverance is big. This is a miraculous thing, and they are being delivered from oppression. They are being delivered from slavery. They are being brought forth into a new life, a new freedom. On the other side, they sing songs. On the other side of the water, they sing songs in in rejoicing. This is the first account, actually, of worship songs in the Bible. It's there. The root of what then grows amongst Israel is there. They sing worship songs to celebrate. And then they come and they arrive at this mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, Mount Horeb. Moses has brought them back to the site of his encounter with God on the burning bush. He's done part one. He's gone from the burning bush, from that call that God has given him. He's gone out into Egypt. He, with his brother, (laughs) stood up and said, let my people go. God, through miraculous intervention, has convinced Pharaoh these are not people you want in your place. Then he has to deliver them through these waters. And now he's back at this site of encounter with God. And now the nation can have an encounter with God. But only one person meets face-to-face with God, and that's Moses. He goes up the mountain. 
And you know that there's, if you, if you read this account, you'll see that actually while he's up that mountain, things go a little bit to rot down below and, and they start building their own idols and something. But on that mountain, God says, now I've got something to give you. Something else to give you. And what he gives them is the law. The law he gives them tells them this. I care about you. I care about you. Young people, I wonder, do you ever get kind of disciplined by your parents? Perhaps when you were young, because you don't do anything wrong now, I'm sure. Did you ever get disciplined by your parents? Did you ever get stopped from doing the thing you really wanted to do? Grown-ups, did we ever get that? Yeah? Okay, we did. Kids, we, we had the same when we were young. We weren't allowed to go and do the things we wanted to do. But why? Parents, why do you have rules for your children? Because we're mean. Right, okay. I don't think that's the answer I'm looking for. Do we have any godly parents in the building? Why? Why? Because you love them. Taya, thank you. Because you love them. To set boundaries. To help them grow straight and true. First time I ever had to tell my eldest daughter no or stop something. Um, she was doing what babies do, crawling around on the floor, and then she decided that that white thing on the wall with a kind of wire coming out of it, that's the kind of thing you could probably bite and teeth on. <laughs> and I said, no! And she kind of, oh! Looked around at me and burst into tears, and I felt horrible. I felt horrible. Do you know, disciplining your kids, putting rules on them for their own good because you love them can hurt. It can really hurt. But God's love is so deep, so deep, that he gave these laws that people would know how to live, know how to look after themselves. Really, really important. And so Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus... The book of the law. You'll find laws in there. You'll find rules in there. Guidance for life is what you will find in there. Do we all have to obey every single one of these rules today? How many, how many men can I see with the hair shaved on the side of their heads? Quite a few of us, really. <laughs> we don't, we don't grow our hair long, do we? Men. We don't, you know, leave it to grow. All kinds of things that we don't do in here. Yet so many things we do, still do. What is the law all about? What is that about? There's different kinds of laws. Let me just summarize this for you. You'll get this in in the teaching. There's civil laws. Laws of how to live together. You know, that's, that's contextual. They're not our laws, but they have transferable wisdom. So we do have those. In fact, our law in our country takes a lot of that and puts it into practice in UK law. So there's civil laws, how to live together in in, in society, being civil to one another, good transferable wisdom. There's ceremonial laws, how to celebrate God's holiness, how to worship God, all of those kinds of things. But in the New Testament, holiness is expressed in a different kind of way. What was external, worshipping God, finding God in a particular place, has now become 
internal. We are made holy, not by rules that we obey, but by Christ dwelling in us. That's the glory of the New Testament, and we'll come to that. But that's different now. So that's kind of different. Um, so, you know, we're cleansed by Jesus. So actually, we can sigh a bit of a relief because a lot of this is sorted through him. Hallelujah. That's part of the freedom that Christ has won for us. And then there's moral law. And basically, this is, if you like, the Ten Commandments, uh, against which there is no argument. This moral law, this, this, this how to live. They transcend race, culture, context, all of those things. No one would agree that it's okay to steal. No one in their right mind. No society thinks stealing is all right. It transcends all of those kinds of boundaries and so on. So that is, that is still there for us. And there's something else. Because of Jesus, because of this, this deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are empowered and energized to live that life rather than struggling ourselves. God's law, the New Testament says, is now written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. So can you see how that, again, is leaning forwards and looking forwards? What else does he give them? His presence in the tabernacle. Another key thing in Exodus. What does the tabernacle say? It says, I'm with you. When they woke up in the morning, in their big encampment, the tabernacle is there right in the middle. And as you get out of your tent and you look, there is God. His presence is there in the very center of that inner tent. There's his provision in there. Within the tabernacle, there's the the table of showbread. That is saying, I will provide for you. His protection is there. The lampstand, that is God's protection. And his presence is there. Beyond this thick and heavy curtain in the Holy of Holies is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, within which are these symbols of God's presence. God is there. And the high priest goes in there once a year. God saying, I am with you. Can you get any bigger expression of love than that? I am with you. And then there's forgiveness. A key thing that comes to to Israel at this moment is an understanding of God's forgiveness, which they three which they see through the sacrifices and all of those things uh, that God gives them. The Day of Atonement, you know, the key one moment once every year when the priest comes and all of the sins of all the nation are laid on that goat. Key moment, key thing. It's only ever a sign pointing forward to Jesus. That blood of that goat cleansed them once, and then they had to keep doing that again and again, and all the other sacrifices they did. But in Jesus, the blood of the perfect lamb, the lamb of God, we are set free from sin forever. So here's the beginnings of this revelation God wants to bring to them, of understanding of all of those things.
on that, um, on that day of atonement, there's two goats. We've got one goat there. Two goats. The first goat, the blood is used to cleanse. You know, the, the blood has to be shed for cleansing from sin. There's a second goat called the scapegoat. That's transference. You know, the sins of the people, are, the, the, the priest lays his hand on that goat, and the sins are in some way we can't possibly understand, transferred to that goat and it runs away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That is how God deals with our sin. He sacrificed his son. His son has died for you and for me. And our sin is now removed, never to be seen again. Hence, John the Baptist says, when he sees Jesus coming, his cousin, weird, isn't it? He sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he says that. It's not just some random thing. He knows what's going on. He's got this whole history behind him. He knows what God is doing. And the Holy Spirit just reveals to him, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is the one who dies for us. Cleanse set free. This is the true story of Exodus. These people are brought out of slavery. They're delivered. They're set free. But then they're forgiven. They are cleansed. And they know true freedom from all of the oppression they'd had before. And so with these gifts, the law, the tabernacle of God's presence, and the sacrifices, the way by which they can be made clean, they set off They break camp and they go off to the promised land. Wow, this is great stuff. Here we go, guys. We're off. We're off to the promised land. Did you know that that journey takes 11 days? How long did they take for it? 40 years. Now, that in in biblical parlance, that means forever. Okay, (laughs) but 40 years. Not 11 days. What went wrong? What went wrong? We're getting there. Spies were sent into the promised land and they saw the amazing abundance that there was there. Yes, this truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at the size of this bunch of grapes, as big as a man. Amazing, amazing promise. But, do you know this is mankind? We like that but, don't we? But, the people there, they're giants. We could never ever go there. Never could we take this. And what happens? The whole story, handbrake on, into reverse, back the other way into the desert. Fear took precedent over faith. Fear of what they could see in the natural, these so-called giants, took precedence over their faith. What had God done only recently? He delivered them out of Egypt in miraculous ways. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea in miraculous ways. Food was given to them. They were looked after. They were cared for. They were loved. They had God's presence right in their very midst. He gave them a way to be forgiven when they got it wrong and for all of their sins to be just thrown away as far as they, as, as far as they could go from them. And yet, fear came in. Fear came in. 
When you lose sight of God, fear comes in. Faith includes God into the equation. Faith says, I can't see a way, but I know a God who can. Faith says, I can't do this, but I know a God who can. Faith says my situation can never change. Fear says my situation can never change. Faith says, but it can in God. Fear says, if I dare admit this failing, people won't like me anymore. They'll reject me. Faith says, but God says I am loved. He will not reject me. And so, one of the two people that go into the promised land at that time, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb come back with a different report. We can surely take them, basically, is what they're saying. With God on our side, we can do this. And out of all of the nation of Israel, the ones that go in are Joshua and Caleb. Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land, sees their deliverance complete. Did you know Joshua is an old Hebrew version of the name Jesus? Right there, God is saying, Jesus will lead you into the promised land. Fullness of deliverance, provision, forgiveness, all of those things. Let's recap. We need to recap quickly. Um, Band, you could probably assemble on the stage if you would. God's personal love in Exodus. He's shown them his name. They know his name. They found freedom from slavery. And they know his care through the law, through his presence, through forgiveness. That is the overall picture. That is what we need to hold on to from Exodus as we start to move forward in this story. But I want to just now connect that with today. Because I said to you, what is it that we might be held in bondage by? Is anything stopping you living in complete freedom? Because all of this story points forward to this. Jesus said in John 8.36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The new Joshua, Jesus, the fullness of all that God has promised. In Galatians, Paul says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You can set somebody freedom to be, to be bound up again. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So God's personal love today, we can know his son. That's his promise. We can know freedom from slavery to sin. We can know his care. His law is now written on our hearts. His presence is through the Holy Spirit who he sent after he'd been ascended into heaven to live within and guide. And the forgiveness comes through Jesus. All of that deliverance, all of that freedom is available to you. What do you have to do? Is God speaking to you today? Do you want to play, guys? Is God speaking to you today? 
Is there something in your life that's enslaving you? It doesn't have to be enslavement from the outside. We can enslave ourselves by addictions, through sin, through all kinds of different things. A lot of those things, work can enslave us if we go about that the wrong way. Work can drag us away from our families. Addictions can rob us of the freedom to be who we really are. Oppression and abuse can do that to us as well. But God has sent his son so that we can be set free. Just want to be a, make an appeal. If you don't know Jesus as your saviour and God has been speaking to you this morning and you want to know the freedom that we've been talking about, come to the front when we start to sing. If there's something in your life which is, which is uh, suppressing you, oppressing you, stopping you living in the true freedom that God has, if fear is overcoming faith in your life in a particular area, come and let's, let's, let's pray, let's talk about that, let's find a way for you out of that oppression and into the freedom of God. What do we have to do? We have to do what the Israelites did. We have to surrender. We have to surrender everything. We sang it earlier. We have to surrender everything to God and trust him. Hold nothing back. In Exodus 12, Israel needed to paint blood, the blood of a perfect lamb, on the doorposts and put their faith in that. We put our faith in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who died for you and for me. If you want someone at freedom, you can come to the front and we'll pray for you. Claire, small group leaders, Mike and Taya, others, let's be ready if people want to pray.